across the US and Canada, people and organizations and research groups um, have been conducting surveys about why some people seem to stick around in some churches, why some churches seem to grow and thrive and other ones don't. And so there has been a, a research group called Barna Research that has reached out to people across the US and Canada and they've asked them one question and it's this. Why did you come to the church where you are and why did you stay? And the responses to those questions were quite fascinating. You might think to yourself, well, maybe the, the most common answer was compelling worship. But that was actually the third most frequently stated answer. You might think to yourself, well, maybe it was um, compelling preaching and teaching. That's what caused them to go to a church. And that was actually the second most frequently stated answer. The most frequently stated answer across the board in U.S. and Canada was this. Relationships and people. The people who comprised of the church were the people who wanted or kept them staying within that church. And when you get that answer, you probably think to yourself, well, yeah, there's, there's nothing surprising about that. That makes a whole lot of sense to me. Let me share uh, another statistic with you. This comes from a gentleman who is a professor at Princeton Seminary, and he asked exactly the same question to all of his freshman students for 33 straight years. Here's the question that he asked. He said, what was the source of the greatest spiritual growth in your life to these seminary students? He even made it multiple choice. Letter A, um, Christian friends that you're close with. Letter B, the Bible or another compelling book. And letter C, uh, a mentor or a teacher or a guide who has significantly impacted your life. And without fail almost, 96% of all the people who were asked that question over 33 years gave the same answer. And the answer, of course, is letter A, Christian friends. Now, I want to I share just one more statistic with you, so stick with me. What I would like to do is, after sharing this one, I would like you to compare and to contrast both of them. So this time, the question that was asked from Barna Research was this. How do Christians grow in their faith? Do you see the difference between the two? The first one, or the first two, was asking the question, what is your personal experience? How have you come to grow in your relationship with Jesus? And this one is more generic. It's just saying, in general, how should people ultimately grow in their Christian faith? And to this question, the two most common responses were this. Here's the first one. Private spiritual practices is the first response. So you ask, how do you grow in faith? And, and most commonly, we'll give the answer, well, you should read your Bible, you should pray, you should uh, enter into solitude, engage in spiritual disciplines. Those are the types of things that are going to cause you to have a greater relationship in Jesus. And in, in many respects, that is absolutely true. If you are a member of Gateway, you've heard me say this to you before, what God is ultimately after in your life is the renewal of your heart. <laughs> God wants you to be drawn to him. That's what we read in the book of James chapter 4. Draw near to God and he will surely draw near to you. And here's the second response that we get that's most frequently stated. We find out that the second is going to church or listening to sermons. And so from there, we, we see that uh, listening to a podcast, or going to church, or listening to messages, those are the ways that you ultimately grow in your faith. So while the two most common responses are private spiritual disciplines, 
and going to church, there's a third fundamental way that we grow as Christians in our discipleship habits with Jesus. And that third way is spiritual relationships. Spiritual relationships. And so what I'd like for us to do today is I would like us to unpack that and see what Scripture says about this third way and how it is so fundamental to our growth as Christians in the Lord. So to do that, I want to encourage you, open your Bibles and find the Gospel of John. John chapter 17, starting at verse 20. And while you're looking for that, I'd like to bring our newcomers up to speed. We are in a Missio Day series in which we are looking at our mission statement as a church here at Gateway. And our mission statement is this, helping people to love and serve Jesus. That's our mission statement, those seven words. And we don't want them just to be words that we put up on a banner in our foyer somewhere, but we want to live according to that mission. So we've been looking at six values or plumb lines that help align us as a church, highlighting what we do and what we don't do. And here are the ones that we have been looking at for the last three weeks. They are as follows. We prioritize the gospel above all else. That is the firm foundation. And even though that might seem like a no-brainer, of course that's going to be the foundation, one thing we know to be true is that many churches have risen and fallen on the fact that they have forgotten their first love, their main priority, which is the gospel of Jesus. And so we've learned that there actually are many competitors to that ultimate value. Number two, we do whatever it takes to reach people for the gospel. We looked at 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul says, I will be all things to all people so that by all possible means I might win some. And then we looked at some examples of what he did. Some crazy things that the early church was willing to do in order to accommodate and bring along unbelievers so that they could come to know Jesus. And the one we looked at last week is we make disciples, not just believers. We could say, I believe in Jesus Christ. But as James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, well, you believe in Jesus? Great, even the demons do. So we don't just want to become believers, we want to become disciples, fully committed disciples of Jesus in everything that we do. And bringing us right up to where we are today, our fourth value that we're going to be looking at today is discipleship happens in circles. Discipleship happens in circles. Life change happens in circles. Transformation happens in circles. God's movement in the world for the sake of his kingdom happens in circles. So if you have your Bible, look there with me. John chapter 17, starting at verse 20. Jesus is praying for his disciples just before his ascension on high. Before he leaves them, he he wants to issue a prayer for them, and he's talking to his heavenly father, and he says this. My prayer, verse 20, is not for my disciples alone, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, because that's what disciples do. Disciples make disciples. So I'm praying for them so that others will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Circle, highlight, underline. Then, I love this, then when that happens, Jesus says, the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. 
This is such an incredible passage of Scripture, highlighting Christian unity and what it looks like when it happens. And this is what I want to propose to you today. The principle that we're looking at, that discipleship happens in circles, it's not just some sort of divine instruction. It's not just God telling us the way that Christians grow is spiritual relationships, and therefore I'm going to give you a series of commands and tell you, you got to do it. But what we need to see is that through John 17, we are learning that in our essence, we are made for community. We are made for community. Let me give you an example. Let's say um, the vast majority of us, so we, we go to the gas station from time to time, and, and we click unleaded gas, right, or regular gas, and we put it in our car. Why do we have to get regular gas? You might think to yourself, you know, why is it that they're always telling me that I must have regular gas in my car? What if I want to put canola oil in it? What if I want to put ketchup in it? What if I want to choose some other resource to put in my car? Don't I have that free will? Well, yeah, of course you do. It's not just that gas stations have all gathered together and said, you know what, we're going to make them have regular gasoline. But what it's actually highlighting is that a car has been made in a particular way And the way that it functions best is if it has unleaded regular gasoline in that car. And so what that is to say is there's a certain way in which cars are made. There's a certain way in which human beings have been made in the image and the likeness of God. And the key that unlocks this mystery is found in John chapter 17. When Jesus talks about the unity of of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, a holy community of persons. And then we find out in the book of Genesis that Adam and Eve were made in the image and in the likeness of God. Do you know what that means? In the same way that God the Father is a holy community unto himself, we have been made for community. It's not just that we have to do it. It's not just that God commands it. It's not just that God instructs it. It's that we've been made for it. And that we need it at our core. Fundamentally, we have been made to live this way. The blueprint for how we've been made is found in John chapter 17. Let me just kind of, if, if I can't explain it, let me just give you kind of a visceral example of this. Uh, many of you know that ever since COVID started for the last 10 months, there has been a lot of difficulty in our family and with our friends and in our community. There has been a lot of turmoil and strife and heartache. Um, I was sharing with our life group leaders just last week that one of the silent killers of COVID-19 is going to be isolation. And the effects of isolation. I was doing some research this past week, and I wanted to just take note of all the things that are on the rise in British Columbia right now, and are on the rise in Canada. I'm not sure if this is a worldwide worldwide statistic, but it is at the very least in BC and Canada. These are the things that are on the rise in our province. Let me list them out for you. Divorce. Depression. Suicide, attempted suicide, loneliness and despair, cases of abuse, self-medicating, 
drug abuse, and many, many more. And listen, these, these aren't just statistics, right? These, these are people. These are our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members, our friends. 26% of Canadians, more than one in four, are dealing with very high levels of anxiety and stress at this time, higher than ever recorded in human history. And so we see the effects of isolation and loneliness. We see the effects of what happens when we feel segregated. It's one of the reasons why uh, BC Health Authority has decided to reopen and allow support groups to start meeting together. So if you are a part of an AA program, there was a season in which you couldn't gather. They said, you know, we have to let them gather due to the effects of loneliness and isolation. These are the things that, that we have to be able to accommodate even in the midst of a global pandemic because they're beginning to see some of the effects of isolation. And you know, there, there might be authorities who say, I, I don't believe in John 17, but there's something intrinsic about the human being that longs for community and connection. And when they're separated from it, something within their psychology begins to break down. And Jesus gives the explanation as to why. He says, you've been made for community. Let me give you one example of Jesus. There is only one time in Jesus' earthly ministry, his approximate 33 years, in which he looked toward his heavenly father and he cried out, why? There's many things that happened in Jesus' ministry, but, but there's only one time when he cried out, why? Do you know when that was? It was on the day he was crucified, but it wasn't when the nails pierced his hands and his feet and he was writhing in pain. It didn't happen in that moment. He was like a lamb before the slaughter and he was silent even in the midst of that moment. It wasn't until the father turned his face away and then Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what I'd like to appeal to you is it wasn't just in Jesus' humanity that he cried out why, but also in his divinity as one member of the Godhead, looking to his heavenly Father, saying, why have you abandoned me? Why have you turned your face away from me? And we see even in this the way in which human beings have been made in the image and the likeness of God. And so all that is to say, we don't only long for connection. We don't just long for it, we're made for it. We're made for it. And so I think one of the things that we see in John chapter 17 is a few examples of how the essence of community has been made within our blueprint. And, and I want to review them with you together. Three things, three principles, three elements that we find for our Christian unity. The first one is this, one gospel. We all share one gospel. As Christians, we find ourselves with one unique shared experience of the gospel of Jesus, a shared unity. Uh, Pastor Marcel has already prayed for uh, the new president and vice president of the United States. And one of the things that uh, you probably saw this past week was uh, the inaugural address. And one of the things the president prayed for was unity. In fact, I... I would dare guess that that word was uttered more than any other word on that day. A plea for unity.
But listen, for Christians, it's even deeper still. It's not simply a unity of nationality. It's not a a unity of a constitution or of an idea. It's the very unity of our essence. See, every single Christian shares the exact same thing. The, The sweet grief of repentance of our sin. The humble boldness to know that you are someone who is far more sinful than you ever care to believe, but far more loved than you ever dare to imagine. Far more known than you could even conceive of in your minds. And we share that common experience that we are accepted by God. And so what that means is there's supposed to be a certain level of unity when one Christian and another Christian gather together, regardless of their circumstances, regardless of their cultural or ethnic background or their personal beliefs, that when they gather together, they fit. They fit. Because their foundation is in Jesus. Not in any other external thing. So regardless of what you bring in to that relationship, you're going to fit together because of Jesus. And so there's one gospel that unites us together. Here's the second one. One body. We all comprise of one body. Now what does that mean? Are there any sports fans, NHL fans among us? Uh, Perhaps you know of a, a young talent by the name of Kirby Dock. He was the captain of Team Canada in World Juniors this year. He plays for the Chicago Blackhawks, and he is a very gifted athlete, uh, very coveted by all the other teams who don't have him. But if you are watching the World Juniors, you know that he injured his wrist. And because he injured his wrist, he's out for the whole season. And you might think to yourself, he's like, isn't he, doesn't he still have a strong heart, strong lungs, strong calves, strong thighs, big abs, muscles on top of his muscles, all these gifts, another good wrists, all of that is okay. 98% of his body is perfectly fine. And yet the whole body is sitting out. The abs, the calves, the thighs, the lungs, they're all sitting out for the whole season on account of the wrist. And the Apostle Paul says in the same way that we are one body, but we comprise of many parts. But when one member suffers, we all suffer. When one member rejoices, so when that heals, they're all going to rejoice. And they're all going to go out and play together. So if you're taking notes, here's what you can read up on later. 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, Ephesians 4, Romans 12, 1 Peter 4. There's just a few. There's more. But read those later, and you will see that fundamentally in the New Testament, constantly there's this vision that as a church, we comprise of one body. And then the third one that I want us to spend the majority of our time talking about today is this, one proof. One proof. How do we know that a church is functioning like the body of Christ? That a church is functioning the way that it should? And the Bible answers that question too. So, if you're in John, I want you to put a tab there and start turning to the right until you find the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 23. You got that? Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 23. We don't know who the author of Hebrews is. We have a few assumptions. But here's what the author says. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how, I want you to circle, highlight, underline that word how, 
The author is telling us, what does this look like for us to do what I'm about to say? Consider how we might spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And then he provides an answer. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day of the Lord approaching. Just three verses that have a profound effect on the church. And and I want to be really careful here, but but I want to highlight something that happens a whole lot when this scripture passage is typically read. And, And I've seen it touted this way on Facebook many times. Oftentimes when we read Hebrews 10, this verse has been used as kind of the the quintessential proof as to why regardless of what's happening in the world, even in the midst of COVID-19, the church needs to gather at church. That's the proof of it. But but here's one I want to propose to you. Two things. Number one, as a pastor, my longing too is that we would gather together in this place. My heart grieves for the fact that we still can't do that, even after 10 months, that we still can't be in this place. And, And I long for the day in which we can. But... Hebrews chapter 10 should not be the quintessential proof that we use because here's the way that I put it in your note sheet. I said this. They're talking about circle gatherings in Hebrews chapter 10, not row gatherings. They're talking about circle gatherings, not row gatherings. So if if you're someone who says Hebrews 10 says we need to gather, we need to join back in church, the only thing that I will say to you is there's plenty of passages like that, and especially in the Psalms, But Hebrews 10, what it is giving laser focus to is circle environments. That's the context. Environments in which we can spur one another on to love and good deeds. Environments where we can live out the roughly 66 one another commands of Scripture. What they're talking about here are home groups. The first century equivalent of what we call life groups. A devotion to the apostles' teaching, a devotion to the breaking of bread, and a devotion to the one another's of Scripture. So the question isn't, can we gather together in a big church and listen to corporate teaching and listen to the Word of God preached and sing praises with the entire body, as important as that is? What the author is most interested in in this environment is this question. I put it this way. With whom do you have regular intentional, God-centered, spiritual conversations? That's the question that the author is asking. Because as we learned last week, our objective is to become disciples of Jesus, not just believers in Jesus. As important as that is to believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of the world, but that we would be wholeheartedly committed to following Jesus where he tells us to go. And when the Bible says jump, we say how high, that we become fully devoted to the word of God and what he says for our lives, and we commit to do it. We commit to do it. So here's the litmus test. This is what I want to do for just a little bit of time this morning, because I think it's going to be helpful. I want to walk through a few of the one another commands that are found in Scripture. And the question for all of them is going to be this. Do you have environments already in your life in which these things happen? Very simple question. So it's a bit of a litmus test, right? Do you have environments in which these things can happen? So here's, here's the first one. Instruct and exhort one another. Three times in the New Testament, this instruction is given. This command is given to instruct and exhort one another. So this means that you have to have people in your life 
in which you have such a good relationship that, that you can even go up to them and you, or they could come up to you and say, listen, brother, listen, sister, I, I've just been observing that, you know, lately I've been noticing that, that your heart has been getting really hard and, and I'm concerned about you. And there'd be a good enough relationship there that you wouldn't write them off and say, who are you to say that to me? Back off. But you would actually be receptive to that message and, and maybe even over time be grateful for the fact that they shared with you. I was sharing uh, a passage this past week with my wife Julie and she said, oh, it's kind of like um, when there's something stuck in your teeth or when your fly is down, right? And, and you're walking around, hanging out with people and, and maybe, just maybe, there's a friend who comes up to you and says, I, I hate to tell you this, but your fly is down. And instantly you have two thoughts, don't you? The first thought is like horror and dread, like, oh my goodness, how long has my fly been down? But at exactly the same time, the second thought is like, such great gratitude. Thank you so much for telling me. In fact, if no one told you throughout the whole evening, and eventually you found out yourself, you look down, you see it, and you find out it's been that way for two hours, aren't you a little bit frustrated with your friends? Like, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you share with me to save me the embarrassment? In the same way, if you have those kind of relationships where you can actually instruct and encourage and exhort one another. And actually, that's probably the easy one. What about this? Do you have meaningful relationships where you can do this? Admonish one another. Where you can admonish one another. This is like a, a really scary and difficult thing, isn't it? That means when, when someone is being a jerk, condescending, so obtuse and, and close-minded and abrasive or, or possibly even abusive, that you could go to them and do exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, when he says this, when a brother or sister is caught in sin, like a bear caught in a trap, you must go to them and gently and humbly admonish them. It's a command, not an advice, right? Can you do that? Do you have environments in where you can do that? But let, let me just take a step back here. In order to be able to do that, we need to have a good foundation. Have you ever had a moment in your life in which someone who you don't even know, perhaps you've had this on Facebook, uh, comes to you and admonishes you and says, you should do this, or you should do that? What's our gut reaction, even as Christians? It's always, back off. Who are you? Who are you? <laughs> like, I don't know you. You're going to admonish me anonymously? You know, you keyboard enthusiast going to tell me what I need to do or shouldn't do? Usually we don't respond to that well. And yet, if we have a firm foundation, a good relationship, like if a, a loving spouse or a loving friend came up to you and gently admonished you, there's a higher degree of receptivity. I think of it like an ATM machine. The only way that you're able to make a withdrawal is if you've been constantly investing into that account so that when you need to make that withdrawal, there are already funds within it. And the same thing happens relationally speaking, which means there has to be a firm relational foundation in order for you to be able to give that hard word and maybe in time for them to be so grateful for you for having said it to them. Or what about this one? Confess your sins to one another. Confess your sins. You have to have people in your life with whom you are confessing your sins. It doesn't mean you're, you're constantly spilling out your guts to every single Christian you come into contact with. It doesn't mean you share it with everyone, but you do need to share it with someone. Some people. People that you trust. 
people that you care about and they care about you. And there's a relationship there where you can openly confess your sins and say, listen, I'm struggling with this. Can, can you pray for me? Can you walk alongside me? Or this burden is just too heavy to carry myself. Could, could you help carry the load for me? And so again, with all of these, the only question that I can ask you, wherever you are, in your living room, in your bedroom, wherever you are, can I just come through your computer or TV screen and say, do you have these relationships in your life right now? Right now. People with whom you have regular, intentional, spiritual conversations. Let me give you just one more. Carry one another's burdens and bear with one another. So this includes deeds as well, right? Uh, someone who has a physical problem or an economic problem or an emotional problem, some other problem, you're, you're able to carry their burdens and they're able to carry yours. You do it for the sake of one another. And without going through all the other ones, I just want to give you a list of other ones that I think are applicable when it comes to circle gatherings as opposed to row gatherings, and they are as follows. Serve one another. Be compassionate to one another. Forgive one another. Submit to one another. Build up one another. Spur on one another to love and good deeds. Uh, offer hospitality to one another. Pray for and with one another. Be devoted to one another. See, Scripture is drenched in the assumption that we have meaningful Christian relationships with others so that we can grow and thrive as Christians. And the sad truth is the vast majority of Christians in the church today do not have this. They have church, they have their Bible, they have solitude, they have prayer, but what they don't have is regular, intentional, one-another environments in order to live out the one-anothers of Scripture. And see, my concern for you, if you don't have these environments in your life, is not just that you're not following the, the 66 commands, not advices, but commands of Scripture. My concern for you, at least from what we learn in John chapter 17, is that you're not living in the way that God has made you intrinsically to live. And that is the ultimate issue. See, a lot of times I, I might hear comments like, you know, small groups, discipleship groups, community groups, life groups, whatever they're called, they're just not, not for me. Or you might say something like, I, I just don't have the time, I'm, I'm too busy. But with respect, the, the one thing that I would say is, if John 17 is true, then it's not a matter of whether or not you have enough time. It would be the, the equivalent of driving around in your car, seeing the E sign that you're about to run out of gas and saying, you know what, gas stations aren't for me. Like, you gotta eat, you gotta sleep, you gotta get the gas. You have to live in the way that God made you to live. Otherwise, things will begin to break down. And it's for that reason that we say this. Discipleship happens in circles, not just in rows. Do you feel the weight of that? Do you see the difference that we're trying to see? I, I am not trying to work myself out of a job and saying preaching is not important, corporate worship is not important. It's absolutely important. But there's a third element that's often missing in our life, and it's spiritual relationships. And maybe, just maybe, there's some of you who are saying, you know what, I, I've been going to church all my life, but I still feel like there isn't a closeness with God. I feel like I'm not growing in my faith. Well, maybe, just maybe, you've been fully devoted to two elements of your life, but have been neglecting the third. And what you need is what Scripture refers to as iron sharpening iron, so that you can grow 
with other committed Christians. Because here's what we know. Three things that we know. You can't one another each other by yourself. You can't one another each other in rows. And you can't one another each other without intentional conversations. And at Gateway, we refer to these as life groups. And and here's what we're trying to do in these environments. In life groups, this is what we say we're doing. Life groups are weekly living room conversations to help you figure out what to do on Monday with what you're hearing on Sunday. That's what it comes down to. That's the objective. And so we hear the word of God preached on Sunday, but on Monday or whatever day you meet, you roll up your sleeves and you say to yourself, all right, how does this play out in my life, in my workplace, in my marriage, in my parenting? in my finances, in my leisure time, in my entire life, every element of my life. How does this play out? And like I mentioned to you earlier, since COVID hit, we're we're all starting to feel the loneliness of isolation. That loneliness that comes relationally when, when we feel splintered and separated from other people. But here's another statistic that I wanna share with you that just makes my heart bleed. Across U.S., Canada, and the U.K., what we have seen is that people whose only connection to, the Sunday, or to a church was a Sunday morning service, they have been leaving the church in droves in the last 10 months. So that is to say, I, I put it this way, those who only watch Sunday services are also the ones most likely to stop watching Sunday services. And the vast majority of people who have stopped watching in the last 10 months have been in this camp because there's something that's been missing in their life. There's something intrinsically that has been missing in their life. And this makes perfect sense to me because as a pastor, this is one of the things that that I like to say. I like to say that connection trumps content. (laughs) Connection trumps content. And I have seen this play out a million times as a pastor. Let me just share a couple examples of this with you. Let's suppose that um, someone is unhappy at church and they have no connection with, with any member of the church that they're participating in. What will they do? They'll leave, right? But if they have firm relational connections with people in that church, they'll stay. Why? Because you don't leave your family when you get into a fight. You work through it. But what do you do when you have a really negative experience with an institution that, that services something in your life, like, like Dell or Amazon or Netflix or some other company that you solicit their services and they take your money? Well, in those types of instances, you give them a one-star rating and you walk away. But in a family, you stay. And we know that that's exactly what happens in church, too. If you have no relational connection to the people of a church, then you'll walk away. Or what happens uh, when a guest shows up at a church and they experience compelling preaching and vibrant worship and they stay there for a few months but they make no relational connections? What do they do? They leave. Because there's something that's missing, relationally speaking. Or what if there's a global pandemic and people can't meet in a building for 10 months and the only connection that they had prior to COVID was just casual Sunday attendance? They start to leave. Because relationships are always the key. Now, I'm I'm not trying to uh, disrespect myself, but let me just give you a personal example of this. If I weren't a pastor of Gateway, and the pandemic hit, and I didn't know anyone here, it wouldn't be the worship and the preaching that would keep me here, because there's this thing called YouTube, and I could listen to all my favorite preachers, 
and the most compelling worship to my exact preferences and specifications, and they could probably even do it shorter, and whenever I want. All those things would be combined into one. Wow! See, what would keep me at Gateway is none of those things. What would keep me at Gateway is you. The people. The connections. What makes Gateway Gateway is the people. And in the same way, every single human being has exactly the same thoughts because that's the way that we've been made. In God's image and in his likeness, we long for relationships with God's family. So you might say, all right, Justin, uh, that's important, but, but I've tried groups before, and they're weird, and oftentimes they talk about their feelings, and that's just not for me. What do life groups do? Let me show you three things that we try to do. It's even ABC, really easy to remember. Here's the first one. We apply the Bible to life. As I've shared with you already, what we learn on Sunday, we roll up our sleeves on Monday, and we say, how does this apply in the rest of my life? Scripture says, all authority is God-breathed and is useful for correcting, teaching, and training in righteousness, so that as servants of God, we might be built up for every good work. And so what we're doing is we're saying, what does the Bible say and how does it impact my life, my relationships, every sphere of every element of my life? Here's the second one. We seek to build authentic relationships because that's the key to making us human. We need a place where we can sit and we don't have to smile and act like everything is going okay in our lives. And oftentimes that we do, that's what we do in corporate worship settings. What I refer to as the parking lot miracle, right? You're fighting with your kids in the back seat. You're fighting with your spouse. You get to the parking lot and instantly, miracle, everything's fine. And you walk into church and say, hey, how are things going? Oh, they're going so great. Oh, it's going so good. But little do they know that you're having a really terrible week. How many of you, after uh, a Sunday service, when we were able to gather here, you go out into the lobby and you say, hey, how's the weather? How's work? And then... Two seconds later, someone says, I, you know what, I just need to confess my sins to you for a moment. Have you had that experience? Because this is not where it happens. We need authentic relationships where there is space for us to be ourselves. And we can be honest with each other and you say, you know what, I had a terrible week. Could you pray for me? Could you walk alongside me? And the people in that environment would be so grateful for you to have said that to be open and vulnerable enough to share. That's the second, and here's the third, where we can care for each other. We can meet each other's needs. We can function according to the body of Christ that we see in John chapter 17. Because here's what we believe. We believe this. If you Velcro Christians to the word of God and to fellow Christians, they'll grow. If you Velcro people to the word of God, and to fellow Christians, they will grow. And so, let me just appeal to you. If you've been thinking about life groups, but you don't want to sign your life away, I want to encourage you to consider one thing. Why don't you give it a try? Here's what we do. We have life groups for nine weeks in the fall, nine weeks in the spring, and if my math is correct, that's 18 weeks. We do it for an hour and a half. That's a total of 27 hours. I want to share with you three things that Canadians do for more than 27 hours per year. One of them 
is brushing their teeth, or at least you should. You brush your teeth, at least according to uh, uh, the Canadian regulations who follow this, for 33 hours per year. Canadians wash their bodies, shower or bathe, for over 40 hours a year. And Canadians with Netflix subscriptions watch Netflix for 40 hours a month. 400 hours a year. And my encouragement to you is to give it a try. Give it a try. And if it's not a good fit for you, we're not going to come after you with pitchforks. We're just going to be grateful that you gave it a try. To close, I want to share one final story with you. Uh, for people who know your church history well, you might know of the story when John Wesley, the Wesleyan church was started by John Wesley, incredible hymns and songs have been made by John Wesley and George Whitfield, who is perhaps will go down as one of the greatest and most compelling preachers of all time. And they were a duo. Can you imagine? Compelling preaching, amazing worship. And you know what happened during that time? There a great revival broke out and millions of people came to know Jesus. But what many people don't know is that at the center of that movement was small groups. Yeah, small groups. Here, here's what happened. Um, John Wesley, he would say this. He would tell people to get together in groups of 10 to 12, and he said, get together every week and do three things. Read scripture, help one another, and pray for one another. And it was an Episcopal church at the time, and the vast majority of people, uh, to put it lightly, were displeased. <laughs> They were not very happy with them. They said, religion is a private matter. All I want to do is hear compelling preaching, Whitfield, and have compelling worship, John. I want both of you to do your jobs and keep religion private. That's all that matters. And so there was a lot of folks who were very unhappy with them, but they pushed through. And here's what John Wesley said in response. Very calmly, this was what his response was. The Bible says, John Wesley tells us, Confess your sins to one another, James chapter 5, verse 16. The Bible says, John Wesley says, exhort one another daily so we're not hardened by sin, Hebrews 3, 13. The Bible says, teach one another and admonish one another in wisdom, Colossians 3, verse 16. The Bible says, stir one another up to love and good works, Hebrews 10, 24. The Bible says, bear one another's burdens, Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. The Bible says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, Romans chapter 12, verse 15. And one more. Now, if you do not meet to do these things, when will they get done? <laughs> when will they get done? And on the heels of that, a great revival broke out because the church was committed to three things. The word of God, corporate worship, and meaningful relationships centered on God's word and prayer. And what we do here at Gateway is we commit wholeheartedly to making disciples, not just believers, so my prayer for you is this. Please don't be a passive pew sitter. Step in. Have these meaningful relationships in your life so that you can grow and flourish and thrive. And if we do that, here's how I want to close. I want us to read verse 23 one more time. John 17, verse 23 says this. I and them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity and then, here's what happens, the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Let me pray for you. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for this church. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would work in the hearts and the lives of your people, that we would have meaningful relationships in which we could live out the one another's of Scripture so that we can grow and flourish and thrive and become fully devoted followers of Jesus. We ask that you would inspire us to find those relationships if we don't have them. If we do, Lord, we ask that you would cultivate them more so that we can achieve greater degrees of depth and transparency and trust. And if not, we ask that you would give us those relationships so that we can grow and thrive. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who made it all possible, who died on the cross for our sins so that we could be set free. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.